0: So there are days when I am so struck by the fact that I'm old, or maybe <laughs> older than than I, I like didn't know where this was about. going. <laughs> well, you know, there's just there are things that you're like, oh, so yeah, that's what the kids are listening to, and some of it I absolutely love, right? And and then there are other things, or you know, maybe it's just you know, whatever you're you're knees are creakier than you wanted them to be that morning or whatever it is, you know, now I'm sounding like I'm decrepit. So. um, Yeah.
1: I was going to say, I don't have that impression of you. Yeah.
0: Well, no, but there are certain, um, there's certain things that are happening in our world that you, 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 you want to know more about and you want to learn about because other people are talking about them. And I'm just going to say, for the most part, I can kind of jump into something and, and sort of learn or at least bluff my way through and go, Oh yeah, I got a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, today's topic is one of those that I'm fascinated with, but it, I get lost one, two, maybe three sentences in.
1: (laughs) Same. It's me too. Don't worry.
0: Okay. So you can, you can feel, maybe it's not old then. Maybe it's just, I'm maybe it's, uh, I'm just not keeping up with this or, Uh, maybe I just don't have the brain power. I don't know. I don't
1: know if it's Um, that for me, it's more, um, if you're familiar with that bell curve of adoption, we are so far left on that curve still. Yeah. Meaning that I don't even know that we would use terms like early adopters. I think we're still in the innovation stage of the amount of people that understand what this topic is, is so small that it's really easy to. Feel like you're the only one that doesn't know what's going on. Okay. Even though I think most of us don't know what's going on.
0: Okay. Thanks for making me feel better. I, I think I even feel a little bit younger now. So that's great. This has been a great opening.
1: So what are we talking about? Yeah. Let's give them a clue.
0: Um, well, today we're going to talk about cryptocurrency, and um, it—you know—what it is. A little bit of of uh, you know m- maybe where it came from. I was really uh, encouraged by. Learning some of the motivation of some of those who are in this, which is not as mercenary as I anticipated. Is that a fair thing to say?
1: Yeah, especially with our guest today. Um, he even laid it out. Of this is obviously oversimplifying, but in the crypto blockchain world, there are two key motivators for why someone jumps into this industry. One is you're a mercenary, and one is you're a missionary. Yeah. So yeah. meaning one is. I don't want to say one is better than the other. They just have different motivations. And I think some of the loudest voices we hear, especially in pop culture, trend to be a little more mercenary. And so it's easy to just assume, oh, if everyone, everyone in crypto must fit into this really specific box. Yeah. And our guest today kind of turned that on its ear.
0: I think he did, too. I think he did, too. And I was really, um, I I was just pleased with how I was able to track with him after a couple of questions and, you know, asking, okay, wait, go back and say that again. I think I almost understand now what he's talking about when, when you hear people, you know, mining and what does that mean? And why do people do this? And why is, why is crypto something that needs to actually be talked about even with the ups and downs of Bitcoin and everything that's in the news? What, what, what would it be like for us to to understand this development um, that you're right is so early, so early. OK, so our guest today is Daniel Huang, who is the special projects lead at F2 Pool. <laughs> what is that? Um, get ready. He This is the world's largest Bitcoin mining pool and the second largest Ethereum mining pool. Both of those are cryptocurrencies. Both of those are names that we've heard. And it's really possible that none of those words have meaning to us yet. He's also the head of protocols at Stakefish, which is a leading staking service provider for, for blockchain projects. And you start to hear words like blockchain and staking. And what does all of that mean? I so appreciated that Daniel did his best. This incredibly intelligent young man did his best to put the cookies low enough on the shelf where I could reach a few of them. And if you're like me, that'll help you to at least engage in these conversations more than just saying, hey, did you see that headline?
1: If you're looking for a podcast that's going to talk to you about what's going on with Luna and stable coins and proof of work versus proof of stake and all of those things, that is not this episode.
0: No, You're further
1: down the road, so go find an expert on that. Daniel did a really good job of this is almost crypto 101. If you don't even know what the word blockchain means or what cryptocurrency is, we start at the the very, very, very beginning, the building blocks. Yeah. yeah. So if you're yeah. someone that's interested, but you have no idea where to start, this is a good episode for you.
0: Yeah. And again, you, you said it earlier, but I think you'll be surprised by his heart as much as you are impressed with his knowledge. So, for anybody who's maybe feeling a little bit older, or maybe feeling a little bit out of pace with this whole discussion, or it doesn't matter what age you are, if you're just going, what on earth is cryptocurrency, and why does this stuff even matter, I think you're going to find the next few minutes helpful and interesting, so how about we stop right now and jump into our conversation with Daniel Huang,
2: Daniel
0: before we get into really um, a huge amount of questions I have about uh, cryptocurrency, give us a little bit of background on on you and like who you are, some of the story of how you got to where you are in this world and 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 kind of doing what you're doing these days.
2: Sure, um, yeah, thank you for having me, Greg. Well, I could start from where I am right now, and then maybe start from the beginning. So I right now I head the protocols team at Stakefish, which is a proof-of-stake validator. And I also lead special projects at F2Pool, a proof-of-work mining pool. Yeah, how, d- how did this happen? Yes, it, it starts from the beginning. Uh, I So I went to a, a very small liberal arts college called Swarthmore. It's, it's near Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Uh, very liberal and politically active. So I graduate uh, out of the bubble. quite a bit naive, I would say about the world. And, you know, I was like, I'm going to make the world a better place. I ended up working at this law firm. There was a, uh, if everyone, anyone remembers in 2012, there was a congressional hearing um, uh, around HSBCs getting caught for money laundering or supporting these money laundering and terrorist financing, like these Mexican drug cartels, like these, these financiers in the Middle East.
0: HSBC, for our listeners, is huge international bank. So just to catch everybody up on that.
2: Yeah, the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Company. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there was all sorts of crazy. There's actually a, a special on Netflix about this whole congressional hearing and what, what had happened. And so our law firm was defending them. And so my team got sucked into that. And I was obviously got to see a lot of the everything under the hood, which was <laughs> quite crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of like these moral ambiguities of like, what am I doing with my life? Like, what am I supporting indirectly or directly, right? Even though I was at the bottom of the totem pole, thinking very morbidly, like, if I like step out of the office tomorrow and I get hit by a car, what would I have contributed to society? (laughs) For me, it was like, I wanted to live (laughs) meaningfully. So I raged with the law firm. We won, like we quote unquote, won the case. Because HSBC got off with like a slap on the wrist. So that was like basically my Tyler Durden moment. I, I don't know if you remember the movie for Fight Club. I do, yeah, Pike Club. He's like, you know, standing at that thing and he's like, all the banks burned down, right? He blows up all the banks and, you know, he's like-
0: so Luckily you didn't blow anything up. We're not espousing anything like that. <laughs>
2: Figuratively speaking. And Figuratively. So, and so 2013, my friend was like, hey, there's this thing called Bitcoin. We can replace the banks. Right? this is this is censorship resistant decentralization immutability right we can we can re remake this new financial system better from the ground up and my radical self coming from this environment was like heck yeah let's do it uh, when I'd left the law firm uh, I it was quite a dark place in my life because I was thinking very I guess uh, black and white in terms of what I had contributed to society of like pluses and minuses as someone of faith, like, you know, that's not how you should be treating life as. Um, along the same time, one of my close friends from college, he, he, he had killed himself. He had shot himself in the head. And because he was under so much pressure to succeed. And that was like, um, that put me in a really dark place. You know, I was in L.A., flip flops, tank top, doing nothing, just like trying to, you know, see what was up and kind of like give myself a mental break. A typhoon hit in the Philippines in in November of that year. Let maybe me do try to do something good. So I flew over. I ended up working with like this non-governmental organization, an NGO. They specialize in going to like these remote ultra poor areas. So I tagged along. I remember I was taking a break and I met this like a bunch of these kids. And this one kid was like, he was 10 years old. His name was Charles. And he was like, I like math. And, you know, I'm Asian. I'm like good at math because I was like born with it. But like what kid likes math? And so I, I asked him, like, OK, what are you learning in school? And he's like, I don't go to school. Then I'm like, how do you learn math? And he's like, well, my friends who could afford to go to school, they come and teach me. I sold a lot of my Bitcoin. and I got them desks, chairs, computers, like, well, these laptops. And then and eventually over time, I got them gas generators, Internet. And on and on, right? The idea was that if you have like this place that has internet and people will come to it, then more foot traffic means that there's going to be people who go and frequent like the the store that sells a bit of food, right? And then and then you have more money to build more infrastructure. So then they eventually that did work. They eventually built like wells. They started doing these ecotourism things, microfinance, and I and over time, and I still do. But what was interesting there and in, in my crypto journey was that. A lot of the women in that village, because there was no work, they would go abroad and go work as nurses or maids in like other Asian countries, and send money back through remittances using like services like Western Union. They're getting fleeced on these fees, like seventeen percent sometimes, on like the little money that they could send back. And I was like, hey, you know, I am I'm a Bitcoin miner. There's this like currency that can allow you not to get like fleeced by these predatory middlemen. You can send money immediately. You don't have to drive on your like, you know, like small motorcycle three hours to get to the city of Iloilo to go to a bank to get money and come back. But all you needed was an internet connection, computer, a wallet, and then you can do that.
0: The, the theme that just keeps running through this, though, is this uh, desire that you have to right wrongs, to make a difference. You're telling me that you're a person of faith. There's even an intuiting of, hey, I know the plus minus, the the scales really isn't how it works in the Christian faith, but there's this desire to address something that could help people. And I think I'm hearing you say that one of the things with cryptocurrency, one of the potential social goods is to cut out a middleman who is slicing off these various fees in the middle of a transaction, particularly for people who are underbanked uh, and and have less, if, if not zero of those resources. I, I, am I tracking with you?
2: Exactly. And oftentimes these are like very predatory middlemen who have extracting egregious Amounts of fees off of that because these people don't have anywhere else or any other medium of transfer. I found that Bitcoin could be used to help with remittances in that village because I, I was already there. I went to grad school um, and I studied cryptography there and I continued my distributed systems research at Johns Hopkins and then I joined Stakefish where I am at, where I am today.
0: That's the journey. Um, <laughs> do we start with? Explaining blockchain, or do we start with the origin of Bitcoin? I know they're all connected. Um, you know, How would you help someone who is saying, I've heard the terms, I, I know zero. Pretend you're teaching me mathematics in the dirt now. You're really starting very in a very rudimentary way going, this is what you need to know.
2: Bitcoin has its origins come from this mistrust of the traditional financial system not allowing the full expression of self sovereignty self sovereignty meaning if if i earn money i should be able to do whatever i want with that money right i can i should be able to spend it sell it trade it burn it right for all i care the problem with the traditional financial system is that our money if it lies in a bank is is not our money the bank could shut down and our money's gone. Maybe some banks are FDIC insured, but only up to a certain extent. Same thing with like PayPal. If I have my money in PayPal, the centralized company, they may suspect that, oh, Daniel Huang, is he selling drugs and getting all this money from PayPal? We're going to shut his account down arbitrarily without even telling me or asking me. Maybe it was another Daniel Huang, right? And they got the wrong person. But my money that I earned, honestly, is now I don't have access to it anymore. And so the concept of self-sovereignty is, is really core into uh, the, the aspect of what cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin offer people. You need to have a infrastructure that can support that regardless of what anyone says, right? If you have these principles of complete self-sovereignty, censorship, resistance, and along that also immutability where no one can go back into the record and like change things arbitrarily, you need to have a very strong financial infrastructure that can support that. And that is how Bitcoin had come come to fruition, where you needed a decentralized system that is not, right, not centralized, where there's one authority that can decide willy-nilly what they want to do. You need a decentralized system that can operate very robustly and re- resiliently. So the network, this financial infrastructure can continue chugging along it's like a Hydra, right? Like where the Hydra is already existing, where there's so many different heads, you cut one off, it'll still keep living, which is, which is vitally important to be able to have this maintenance and resilience and robustness of that. So you have the necessity of censorship resistance and self-sovereignty and immutability. And the blockchain is what is the financial infrastructure that is powered by all these all this complex software and machines to make sure that that is uh, a possibility.
0: So the blockchain is the really the infrastructure by which this currency is exchanged, and the infamous and never to be known Nakamoto is the one who uh, who who initially thought of this sort of concept of currency. With the original Bitcoin, I think there were some other people who had tried some things with blockchain. But he or she, since we don't really know who that person is, right? Exactly, um, is is uh, is is the one who who put this technology to use in the service of this what we'll call a currency? But it's a currency that is not dependent on a Federal Reserve, it's not dependent on a bank, it's not dependent on anything like that. So, is it fair to say, Daniel, that? kind of one of the one of the threads of DNA in the in the origin of well at least Bitcoin probably all cryptocurrencies is a sort of a, a a libertarian kind of a bent of is that a fair way to put that for folks that might understand that term
2: yeah it is I think a lot of um, original bitcoiners were quite libertarian I, I will say I, I think it's props to like you recognizing that there were a lot of attempts before bitcoin and, and i think that history is really important to um, highlight because there have been many many attempts by a lot of like very smart and intelligent cryptographers that had attempted these types of systems like eCash, cash uh, digi and, and and whatnot but it was actually the consensus mechanism that satoshi nakamoto at all had had come up with that really allowed Bitcoin to kind of work. And I think also timing was really important around like the 2008-2009 time where there was basically an all-time low confidence in our financial system for what had happened.
0: I'm, I'm trying to put the cookies on a lower shelf where I can reach them. So let me make sure when you say a consensus mechanism, this is that sort of there are many peer, kind of a peer-to-peer, there are many peers in this ecosystem who are validating and, I don't know, in my head, it's like a checks and balances sort of thing. And they are they are in this together to verify and validate that, hey, what's happening here is legit. Am, am, I, am I close on
2: that? You are right. I think that's closer to what we are seeing on the proof-of-stake system. But um, for Bitcoin's proof-of-work system, Yes, it's a bunch of machines talking to each other, and the consensus mechanism is basically making sure the machines are all agreeing on the same type of data that they're seeing.
0: And what are they agreeing on? I'm sorry. I'm just – are they agreeing this is legit? This is a legit transaction? Exactly.
2: Yeah. And so like – Okay. You know, if you have a physical dollar bill, you can only spend it once, right? Remember when we had checks?
0: I do. I can't believe you're old enough to remember what a check is, Daniel.
2: <laughs> I'm actually not that young, but <laughs> but um but like you can have like you have a bank account that has let's say $5, but you can literally write two checks for $5 and give them to right. two different people. Um and so right that's like an example of what you would say is double spending.
0: But in this system that you're describing, um all of that gets verified in in the blink of an eye, and so that eliminates that kind of fraud.
2: Exactly. And that is like the crux of this verification system where we have consensus, proof-of-work consensus.
0: You know, without even getting into the particulars of blockchain, the reason it's resilient is the moment that you tamper with one of these blocks of information, the chain senses that and breaks down so that it's a secure way of communicating from point a to point b in my dumbed down thinking
2: yeah like you can't even get that transaction even onto the the canonical blockchain that everyone sees like if you if you make like a fake transactions like oh i'm going to make this transaction say i have like a million dollars you can't even and you try to submit that into add to the blockchain that's not even gonna get verified. And okay. It's thrown okay. out the window. Right. So. so
0: so you're at another point though that I think some of us would have is okay, so w- wait, how do I even get into this? What does this mean? Do I do I go to the Bitcoin bank and exchange, you know, one gold bar for X number of Bitcoins? How do you even get into this? If it's a digital currency, what is that? What does that look like?
2: Yeah. So there's two primary ways where you can actually obtain a cryptocurrency. Um, Let's use like Bitcoin, for example. One is you have to mine it, right? You have to contribute to the Bitcoin network by having a computer that is powerful to mine this Bitcoin, right? By validating transactions, putting them into a block and adding them and hopefully having that accepted. And then I get rewarded for my work, right? As in the proof of work consensus, and I can get earned Bitcoin that way. Or I can buy it what used to happen is like maybe i'll come up to you greg with a duffel bag of money and and you have a bitcoin in your bitcoin wallet and you can send me the bitcoin to my bitcoin wallet after i give you my bag of money or i can go to a centralized exchange that does that for me where connects buyers and sellers there
0: and where is uh, we're just going to hit some terms here before we get into some other thoughts I have about it, but where does mining come in? Is that, and, and what, what am I explain mining? I mean, my understanding of mining is that it is this working out of these complex algorithms and computers, or you're, you're eating up a lot of juice to solve these complicated algorithms. My question is, why would I do that? Why, why do computers do this? When we, when we hear mining, of course, we think of, you know, um, you know, I'm going down and, you know, with a pickaxe and pulling ore out of the earth. That's not what this is.
2: Yes. It actually is not as complicated as we all like to say, say like everyone thinks like, oh, it's a complicated. What we're actually doing as a miner is we're just guessing as many random numbers as possible. <laughs> That's literally it.
0: Well, here's, here's my question. Why, why would I do that? What is in it for me to do that?
2: Um, I think a lot of people in, in cryptocurrency often talk about scaling, right? Like, Why does it take so long for me to send a Bitcoin transaction where it maybe takes around 10 to 16 minutes versus like I can, you know, pay for something with my Visa credit card and it takes me like less than a second or something. We have this sort of cadence of when blocks can be added onto a blockchain. And what is a block? A block is basically a package of many different types of transactions that people from all over the world have have sent. Um, to be added onto the blockchain. So let's say, for example, I'm sending you Bitcoin from my wallet to your wallet. You send Bitcoin from your wallet to Tori's wallet, et cetera. And so there's one transaction from me to you, one transaction from you to Tori. And so those two transactions, how do they get added onto the, to the blockchain, right? They all go into something called a mempool, a memory pool. So everyone's who's sending transactions on the Bitcoin network All those transactions go get put into this pool and in this pool is all these like mixed up transactions and we all chose to send each other transactions for a certain fee right so if i wanted to send you like five dollars greg maybe i'll pay like a two cents fee but if i sent like five dollars with bitcoin and i i chose to pay a higher fee my transaction can go through faster we can call them priority fees right the higher fee that you associate with that transaction the faster it gets added. who Who's getting that fee?
0: Since there's no bank, who am I paying that to?
2: Yes. So we have all of these different computers all over the world that are contributing to the Bitcoin network. And that is where the mining comes in. And so there's people like, let's say, like when I was uh, younger, like I was mining Bitcoin. So I had my machine, I connected it to the internet, connected to this network, I downloaded the software for Bitcoin that allowed me to mine and then what happens is i basically the software basically goes in and looks at this this basket of all these transactions that people from all over the world have sent and i go and pick up a bunch like i go I was like okay i'm going to pick up like these 50 or 53 different transactions and i'm going to bundle them all up into a block and so now i have this this package of 53 transactions and then all 53 of those transactions have like small fees right like one transaction has like a two cents fee, another transaction maybe have like a two dollar fee. All those transaction fees, I get to I get to keep if my block gets mined on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so what happens is I've chose all these transactions, put them, package them up into something called a block. And then now, in order for me to add those transactions into the Bitcoin blockchain, the canonical Bitcoin blockchain that has existed for for many years, I have to do What is mining? Uh, When you break it down is a hash function. So a hash function is basically like, as we've all known, like in math, in grade school, these functions where, you know, f of x equals x plus three, right?
0: I love that you were learning f of x equals x plus three in grade school. I love that, Daniel. (laughs) I'm not sure I learned that (laughs) in grade
2: (laughs) school. But basically it's something goes in, something comes out. If you put in some of these inputs, right? So I have I have this package of transactions. I'm going to put those packages of transactions into this function. In goes that package of transactions, like the 53 things in this block. And I'm going to also add a random number to this. So I have this package of transactions and this random number that I'm going to attach to it, put it into this function. And then and that function is going to spit out a number. And that number is required to have a certain number of leading zeros. So this number can be like 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 000001378576. That specific number of, of zeros in there is what is called our difficulty. It's very difficult to get a specific number of zeros that comes before, before that. So I have this, this package of, of, of transactions and I, I, I inserted a random number, put it into the function. Let's see, is it going to have this many zeros? Okay, it didn't work. So I have the same transactions, put another number.
0: And your computer is doing this. Your, your program is doing
2: this. Exactly. And then it's basically what people say is like this complex mathematical formula algorithm. It's just me guessing as many numbers as physically possible to see what output satisfies the Bitcoin's software's difficulty. So when you get it solved, then what? Yes. So when I get it solved, I'm happy. Then I go, everyone, I have this this package of transactions. I have this number that I guessed correctly to give me the set of trailing zeros out of this hash function. I'm going to broadcast this to everyone at the speed of light of the internet, right? Everyone around the network that is also doing the same thing that I'm doing, I'm going to say, hey. I got, this, I got this block, I have the successful hash, verify it. Everyone verifies that, that block gets added onto the blockchain, and then I get rewarded my Bitcoin.
0: It seems to me, I'm trying to put it in a metaphor that I can use, the blockchain is a, the, the goal is for it to be a very secure, hack-free, corruption-free bridge that is built with all of these planks that a transaction can walk across and what you are doing when you are mining is you are contributing your individual computing power to help generate a plank on this bridge that is going across and there are other people when you think you've got a sturdy plank because of your own your computer solved the whatever you're now putting that out there to other people who are sort of verifying and going, yep, nope, that needs to be on the bridge. We're going to keep walking across the bridge.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: Okay. And you get paid for that plank. That's why you are mining.
2: Exactly. You want to be able to make sure that the blockchain can't be like quote unquote hacked or like altered, right? Because there's this concept of immutability, right? Once it's there, it's there. You can't change it. And that's why it's so valuable to have this like historical record that cannot be changed the more computers and the more ha- what we call hash power, right? Because these hash functions are what we're solving. The more hash power that we have on this network, the more difficult it is to hack and change because you need at least more than 51% of all that computational power to be able to like make a, make a change in it that people don't agree with. And, and it, it becomes almost impossibly expensive to be able to have all that computational power, because energy costs money, to be able to change stuff on the blockchain, so immutability is very secure there, at least for Bitcoin, because the network is so big and there's so many machines contributing.
0: Okay, so I, I wanna I wanna now move out of the weeds and come back up to to something when you you've mentioned several times uh, self sovereignty and immutability, and these are the these are this is there is a libertarian aspect to this. We've said that. But what about the the dark side, the dark uses? People talk about, well, wait a minute. So I get all of that, but it feels like there could be, I get the accountability in the mining and in all of the verification, but what do you say to people who would say, well, crypto is, it's, it's uber anonymous, and that's why the bad guys always use crypto.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And it's something that we also um, deal with on the proof of stake side, which is not Bitcoin, but these new cryptocurrencies. And Ethereum, for example, I think a lot of people have heard of Ethereum, is transitioning from proof of work, which I just described, which is energy intensive, to proof of stake, which is very energy, not intensive. I, I really love that you kind of touched on self-sovereignty and anonymity, because we've been seeing a lot of... These experiments play out on, on the proof of stake side, which I live in a lot, where self-sovereignty dictates that you can do whatever you want with your own money. And, and I think this has a lot of ties into this concept of that I was hit in the face with when I was working at the law firm of zealous representation, right? Both good guys and bad guys have to be zealously represented by, let's say, these attorneys, right? You can't have subjectivity come into it because immediately when you have subjectivity come into it. Whoever is deciding what is right or wrong at the top can be corrupt and then it's going to be unfair. Crypto provides anonymity, right? You you don't have to go through like a know your customer process that is very in- involved with like these anti-money laundering schemes that these regulators have, which right, which is good, right? Because we don't want like terrorists able to easily send money because they're not obeying our, the rules of our world that we all live in to have like a functioning society. But if, for example, there are cases where good people need to be anonymous because of whatever situation they're in or whatever oppressive government regime or society they're in, if they don't have that anonymity to be able to transact with money that they own and their bank, their local government bank is like shutting down and all my life savings is gone, then I can't do anything, right? That good that can come out of those people to have self sovereignty. Bad people can also use just the same. You you can't have one one without the other. The immediate moment you take away anonymity from this system, you cannot have self sovereignty. Let's say you have a Bitcoin address, Greg, that is now doxxed. Like I can see, I know this Bitcoin address belongs to you. If you are a very prominent person that has a lot of money that has a lot of influence on whatever happens in society. You are not free to do whatever you want with your money anymore because people are watching you. Even if it's your money, your money moving, going to certain things because it's all transparent on the blockchain, no more self-sovereignty for you. You don't have the full extent of that self-sovereignty because that money itself has weight. If, for example, no one knew that that wallet belonged to you, you now have the ability because you're anonymous to do whatever you want with your money. That is true self-sovereignty. And unfortunately, that does come with the ability for bad people to do things with that.
0: You would suggest that the good is outweighing the potential for bad when it comes to this? Is is, is that is that because your whole story started with someone who was feeling a sense of, I want to do the right thing. I want to be involved with something that's making a difference. So you obviously think that what you are involved with, the potential for social good in this outweighs what seems to, to many to be a really obvious potential for bad.
2: Yes. And I, and I, I think that perhaps can be justified by the fact that the bad, the, the people that are trying to use this money anonymously, right? They're always going, they're going to eventually need to exit somewhere. And you can always track that. And so I would say that the type of regulation that we've been seeing in terms of the tra- traditional financial system to catch these bad guys is is quite archaic in terms of the way that technology has evolved. We have now, with the with blockchain technology, the ability to track down if we know that without any doubt this this account is bad. We can track it down, and then the entire ecosystem that is governing this blockchain, we can go in and stop that. We don't. It's not going to be like a treasure hunt for where this bad guy hid his dollar bills and under a bed sheet or hit it and put it onto these other little different bank accounts.
0: Which I'm curious, I'm curious, does that apply to Russian oligarchs right now? Can that sort of sussing out the bad guys or or saying, okay, wait, you're getting ready to cash out here. Is that happening now? If
2: a Russian oligarch has like billions of dollars in Bitcoin, they can use that Bitcoin wherever they want. But if they try to cash that Bitcoin out for fiat, let's say at a centralized exchange.
0: And fiat, just for our listeners, fiat is... Is what we would call traditional currency versus cryptocurrency.
2: But yeah, I mean, that also gets in. I feel like to a rabbit hole of is the Russian oligarchs' money also self sovereign? Right. Like, right. Is it, right, it, right. Do they deserve that money, or is that is that money fairly theirs? I would say I'm quite a conservative to my beliefs in whether or not that money should be seized from them. But that that is, I think, up to the the ecosystem the blockchain network
0: so for people who are still saying at the end of our conversation here are going okay so i i I don't really have a background in investing i know zero about coding I, i i i don't understand a lot of this um is cryptocurrency something that people will need to become more um literate in this language and and fluent in this language
2: mass adoption will maybe come in a form where people don't know they're using cryptocurrency or they may be they may know but they won't have to deal with a lot of like the clunky user interfaces or user experiences that a lot of early adopters have had to struggle with so you can just like download an app buy some bitcoin or crypt- ethereum or whatever cryptocurrency and then transact with it I buy and sell stuff at a store or whatnot that I think that's what I think total mass adoption is you think that's coming yes yeah
0: and with, with 1600 different or however many there are cryptocurrencies will there be uh will there be one two three ten of these that emerge as okay they're the ones that the world is adopting or we will continue to see just so many of these
2: things there's obviously like the few like Bitcoin or ethereum that are really the ones that are Kind of pioneering the way to, to be used as these like robust, resilient, secure settlement layers to have like these financial transactions go through, and also a lot of other fascinating applications. But I, I would say, even though I I did did mention that um, people will not understand they're using these these cryptocurrencies, the concept of cryptocurrency is that you need to understand the system you're using to actually make full use of what it offers you. We now are, are are in the driver's seat. And so then if we're in the driver's seat, we should probably understand really how, how this stuff works.
0: So to that end, though, without somebody reading, you know, a thick book or getting a graduate degree in cryptography, um... Where, where do they begin to learn? What 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 are some good resources?
2: If people like watching videos, there's this man named Andreas Antonopoulos. He is probably the best place to start with understanding cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. I, I I I oftentimes separate our ecosystem into two camps. It's it's missionaries and mercenaries. He's definitely a missionary, <laughs> and, and I think he has like the right idea of like why this exists. Obviously, if you want to read the Bitcoin white paper, that's, you know, primary source material, right? That like you can read and understand. It's something that I think is, is extremely important to like know for yourself.
0: And we'll, we'll put some of those things in the show notes. So, so in, in wrapping this up, though, um, it sounds like you are, particularly for those who are beginning to understand a little bit of this, this isn't about an investment strategy. This is more about understanding this as a potential currency. I want to thank you for at least giving us some, no pun intended, some building blocks here wherein we could begin to understand all of this. And, um, you know, you referenced Tyler Durden early on. I, I will tell you, you have the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. I will tell you, one of my first rules about cryptocurrency was don't talk about cryptocurrency because you don't know what it is. Maybe at least I can now have a conversation. And um, as a person of faith, I want to begin to actually. To, to think this through when it comes to social good and when it comes to to a, a accountability and when it comes to a lot of these things. So I appreciate you getting us down that road of this conversation, Daniel, um, and giving us quite a lot to think about. I think it's fair to say that you are hopeful about the future of crypto. And what it can do for good in the world
2: yeah I, I definitely am the all the benefits and properties that are afforded by the technology of cryptocurrency and blockchain allow for more effective ways of social good as I as I mentioned before good behavior in the cryptocurrency system is e- incentivized
0: great conversation Thank you so much for giving us some thoughts and uh, starting us down this road and I for one have more questions and more thoughts but it's exciting to see the beginning really of a new really a new a new construct and uh i for one am praying for wisdom and uh the ability to understand this more so daniel thank you for spending this much time with us
2: yeah yeah i enjoyed it a lot thank you for having me
0: thanks for listening to a godzillion in one podcast subscribe share this episode with a friend. And head over to gregholder.com for the show notes. And as always, stop and notice this week the shockingly and seemingly endless ways to connect with each other, this world, and the God who made it all. We'll see you next time.